In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, I spoke last Sunday about Christ's passion. Tomorrow, we'll follow again in his footsteps toward the terrible and awesome events on Calvary Hill. But tonight, we pause to recall those last intimate moments Jesus spent with his chosen band and the sacrament he instituted that night. All of our readings tonight point us there. The Passover lamb of the Exodus prefigures Christ offering up his own body and blood as food and drink. The Israelites ask doubtfully in our psalm, can God spread a table in the wilderness? And God mercifully answers, I can, giving them the grain of heaven and the bread of angels to eat, just as Christ does for us in the wilderness of our sin. Then we come in our gospel to that upstairs room where Christ says, do this in remembrance of me. The practice Paul says he received and handed on to the Corinthians in turn. Why did Christ instruct the apostles to hand on this practice? There are doubtless many answers we might give, and I would recommend to anyone interested in sampling some of them the clear and accessible article Father Arcadi recently wrote for Christianity Today on the Eucharist. And if that wets your whistle, he has a book you could buy. <laughs> anyway, the sort of answer I want to explore tonight begins in the minds of apostles like Peter and Paul in the weeks and months and years and decades after the terrible and awesome events on Calvary Hill. I spoke on Sunday about how Christ's death made satisfaction for our sins. And I suggested we think about this not as a matter of placating an angry God who just couldn't possibly forgive us otherwise. Rather, it was the perfect way of accomplishing atonement, the literal at-one-ment we so desperately need to reintegrate our fractured souls thereby healing our divisions from one another and our alienation from God. In a sense, once we align ourselves with Christ's sacrifice through faith enlivened by charity, once we long in love for God and his goodness and hate our sins that sunder us from him, then the work of atonement is done. This is true in one important sense, I say, but false in another. Eleanor Stump, the writer I referred to some last Sunday, offers the following analogy. To say we're saved by grace through faith is sort of like saying that a friend who has just received her first dose of a life-saving chemical treatment for cancer has thereby been cured. In one sense, this is true. She has received the cure. In another sense, however, the cancer is still very much present in her body, wreaking its harmful effects, and it will be a long road before she is fully healed. 
In the case of Peter, Paul, the other apostles, and indeed each and every one of us, the analog of the cancer is at least threefold. First, there are our inner tendencies to sin, both inherited from our parents and society and compounded by our own sinful deeds. Take Peter, for example. We all know he's a bit of a hothead. I think the Gospels make this clear. But do we detect, in addition, proneness to a sort of pride in his refusal to have his feet washed? Proneness to violence in his rash stroke against the servant's ear? Or to cowardice in his denial three times that he even knows who Jesus is? Or take Paul. Before his conversion, we know he was someone willing to work the coat check and watch approvingly as Stephen the deacon, someone chosen for the job of serving food to widows, is stoned to death while praying. And not only that, Paul is so inspired by this sight that he's soon off breathing threats and murder against the church in his own right. Now, we know that God worked powerfully on both Peter and Paul after the episodes I mention. Yet I find it hard to believe that what we might call the stain of sin was erased from their souls overnight, especially when I consider two further emotional aspects of that stain. There are the feelings of guilt that each must bear. Paul's say when later in life he remembers his role in the stoning or perhaps meets one of the widows whom Stephen used to feed. Or Peter's whenever he hears a rooster's crow. In my experience, these feelings of guilt take a long time to fade if they ever do. And lastly, too, there are feelings of shame. These differ from guilt, I think, in that they may or may not have anything to do with our own moral failings. We may feel ashamed simply when we've done something embarrassing or stupid that makes us feel paltry. Or we may feel shame as a result of sins committed against us when we are humiliated or violated. Or simply as a result of illness or weakness or inability to meet our needs or care for others in a fallen world. Maybe I'm misconstruing Peter's recoiling at the foot washing as a species of pride. Maybe there was no such sinful tendency involved. Still, I want to say, years later, what must Peter have felt when recalling his boneheaded demand that Jesus wash his hands and head also or recalling the ear lopping, or recalling the idiotic disputes about who would be considered the greatest in heaven. In a fallen world, our sinful tendencies or vices combine with our feelings of guilt and shame to comprise the stain of sin. And I think it isn't easily erased. It is erased, however, week by week, and month by month, and year by year, in the practice Paul received and handed down in the Eucharist. 
It is, again, I think a great mystery just exactly how this process works, but I find Stump's way of illustrating it once again helpful. She focuses on the psychology of someone like Peter or Paul when they take the Eucharist. Such a person remembering the vile or weak or just plain stupid things they've done will in many ways see themselves as hateful. Yet as Christians, they will remember that God doesn't hate them, but loves them, loves them so intensely as to undertake voluntarily the shame and agony of crucifixion so they might be reconciled to him and transformed from something hateful to something holy, like Christ. They will believe, too, that the divine person who loves them so intensely is present then and there, and in the sacrament of the Eucharist will become more intimately united to them than it is possible for two created persons to be in this life, since in receiving Christ's body and blood, they become parts of Christ's body. Believing all this when they take the Eucharist, their feelings of guilt and shame will be assuaged. The judge, most in a position to despise and condemn them, loves them and means to rescue them. And they're allied now to that glorious purpose. Their hope will be strengthened. Since God is with them, who can be against them? They will feel a debt of gratitude to Christ and a corresponding determination that his work for them not be in vain. They will feel a surge of love for Christ, who so loved them, and joy that this divine person is with them now and united with them. As long as someone is in such a frame of mind, Stump asks, what chance has their addiction to sin got of retaining its mastery over them? Judge for yourselves. One last word now about shame. The healing frame of mind I've just described does not, of course, stay with us always, which is why we return to the Eucharistic table week after week. But I worry that we can become inured to its effects if we are inoculated to the shame of chewing and swallowing Christ's body and blood with our mouths. This might be a worry particularly for us Anglicans, for whom tact, circumspection, tastefulness, and restraint are so natural. Fortunately for us Anglicans, our liturgy serves up another physical reminder of Christ's ministry tonight in the foot washing, which, since we do it only once a year, never loses, for me at least, a sense of squirmy, shameful awkwardness. C.S. Lewis says this about shame. Remember how there are things too hot to touch with your finger, but you could drink them all right? Shame is like that. If you will accept it, if you will drink the cup to the bottom, you will find it very nourishing. Try to do anything else with it, and it scalds. Now, the cup of which Lewis speaks is metaphorical, but I think his words apply to the actual Eucharistic cup. 
and to the practice of showing love to one another in the squirmy, awkward, shameful, foot-washing way that Christ commands. Let us, then, reveling in the shame transformed into glory by Christ's presence with us, drink these cups to the bottom. Amen. <laughs>